Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. And we're back with this holiday edition of Tripping Over the Barrel with guest star Sarah Sogner, the unicorn. <laughs> Jeremy. We need a hype crew, yeah. You, ne- you never know what you're going to get. I never know necessarily what I'm going to get in those fir- first 10 seconds of, of uh, when my mouth opens when we start this thing. But this is uh, the first one we've done coming out of the, well, at least the Christmas holiday. We still have New Year's coming. So we're, I, don't, I don't know when this one's going to be released, but I'm in full holiday shutdown mode. You know, I haven't shaved in two weeks and just so it's kind of fun to try and get back into the swing of things to do these. Yeah. Yesterday helped. I think my brain went from like 37% to 64% or something like that. But that's probably about where I'm operating right now. Still getting my cups of coffee going, but not quite like what Sarah Stogner has, who I think was in Disney. Is that what I saw on the socials? Like yesterday. Yeah, we took my uh, seven-year-old to Disney for the first time, and I went and visited my dad, who's retired in Florida, and I am back in the Permian today. So thanks for having me, guys. That's a, I've always been afraid to go do like a Disney or something like that vacation on the holidays. What What is that like, just being Ins- at Disney World on Christmas? Insanity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am not a Disney person, right? Um, but it, it, she's at that magical age, and uh, we had some time. So, yeah, it was fun. It was, it was nice, but it's definitely not like an annual tradition for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the happiest place in the world on the happiest day of the year. It really can't get any happier than that. But uh, I'm, I've been excited about this one for a while. You know, Sarah, Sarah, I actually believe we only met in person for the first time at, at NAEP this summer, but I've been certainly well aware of your social media presence um, going back to probably 2016, 2017, around the time I got to, to know Colin as well and started to see some people who were a little bit, you know, I'd say probably challengers a little bit uh, outside of the, the social norm as far as how you use social media for outlets and how you challenge conventional thinking. Um, so glad that our paths have crossed and, and really appreciate your uh, humanitarian efforts and things that I see in terms of, of uh, when I'm following you online. So kudos to you on that. But really, um, and we talked about this before we started, like, I want to get to know you and your upbringing. And, and like we talked about it, you are a lawyer, but maybe not necessarily the type of lawyer that you thought you would have been when you were growing up. So I want to learn a little bit about you as a person and then talk about all the amazing things you have going on, Railroad Commission and um, and your various uh, business interests, cannabis and otherwise. But but want to get to know you sort of starting from the beginning. So who is the unicorn? Oh, man. So I am an only child, the daughter of an aerospace engineer and a nurse. Uh, my dad was transferred a lot. So I grew up all over Florida, California, Alabama. Um, I went to undergrad at LSU, stayed for law school at LSU for a guy, got rid of that guy, moved to New Orleans, started out at Jones Walker, a traditional law firm, um, you know, top 10% of my class. And I thought I was going to be a big corporate lawyer for sure. And then yeah. it's kind of like after I got into the sorority and went through a rush and saw how the sausage was made. And I got into a traditional law firm and saw how they were practicing law and was quickly aggravated with a lot of the stuff. 
But then I think it probably took me mm, eight or nine years to really realize that, holy shit, the system is broken and we have got to do some things to really fix it. But like when high paid lawyers can't afford to hire lawyers, like, you know, you have no. you have disputes. And if it's not at least a few million dollars, it's just not worth litigating. It's not worth the cost. And that is not how the system's supposed to work. Wow. So how how long did you did it take? To, well, I mean, I guess the realization is happens over time. But how long before, hey, this is the system is broken. Bef did it take for you to really come to that and maybe try try to make some changes? Yeah, probably seven or eight years. I mean, I was really bright eyed, bushy tailed. You know, I, I, I remember my first year as a lawyer talking to one of the older female partners and saying that with a straight face and honestly believing that I'd never been discriminated against as being a woman. And she was like, oh, OK, that's cute. You know, and now <laughs> I'm 13 years out and I met a young a young lawyer the other day and she said the same thing. And I was like, Oh honey, that's cute. You know, and <laughs> hold on. Cause it's coming. So you went and doubled down on that. You, you started doing, you know, oil and gas law at some level. And of course you're out in the field all the time as you are right now as a woman lawyer out in the field, the oil field. I mean, I was watching a couple of the posts and I did see it on one of them, but what's that like? being out there in what is traditionally, especially in the field, a male dominated place, but you're, you're right out there with your steel toes on doing, you know, in the field. So what's that like? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because a guy, you show up at location properly dressed in all your PPE, right? You're a middle-aged white dude. People are going to assume that you know what you're talking about, that you're supposed to be there. Um, you know, you drive up in a nice truck and it's like, oh yeah, this is one of the supervisors or right. This is an engineer. Sure. This is, sure. this is a finance guy. This is somebody who's supposed to be here. Maybe he's not in the field all the time, but probably deserves some respect. I show up and it's like, you know, whose crazy wife is here or, you know, wh why is this <laughs> uh, woman environmentalist? You know, there's, there's automatic assumptions. And I think I'm just as guilty as the rest. It's, it's a numbers game, right? Like we just don't see that many women out in the field. And so you see a woman in the field and it, it's the, your, your first instinct isn't, oh, she's a, an authority figure or she knows what's going on. It's, you know, why is she here? And so that's people's initial reaction to me generally. So, so let me ask you then, why are you there? In the least discriminatory way that you've ever been asked by a man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it depends, right? So, so lately, the reason that I've been out in the field is because I'm representing a landowner, actually, for the first time um, in active, ongoing dispute with an underground subsurface blowout. And I'm out there documenting, you know, usually as a lawyer, you come in after all the facts have already happened and you're just trying to to discover, okay, what actually happened and why. And I'm out here actively trying to prevent stuff from being uh, horribly going wrong. And yeah. going wrong, like being covered up or stopping the blowout? Both, you know, I mean, I think, um, I think that for, I'm the more I'm out here, the more I'm learning that I think we've got some serious subsurface flow issues um, across the state, probably anywhere where you have legacy you know, 60, 70, 80 year old wells. Um, but 
specifically out here in the Permian where land has not been seen as valuable, um, where our groundwater has not truly been appreciated and protected. Um, but yeah, no, I think that this is, this is an ongoing problem on several levels. You know, we see the seismic issues that we're experiencing in the Permian right now. And we've got some really difficult discussions as an industry that we need to be having. And unfortunately for too long, you've had some majors who have been paying a lot of money to a lot of different people to come off as the good guy and make us all believe that the Chevrons of the world are going to do the right thing. And I'm telling you, I'm out here living it every day and they are absolutely not doing the right thing. They are doing what they can get away with and they're trying to make money. Wow. <laughs> the, the, the first company called out. We'll, we'll we'll see if more drop here in a second. But so I, I, I get and maybe maybe I jumped ahead a little bit. But how did you go from, uh, I guess New Orleans? Uh, I don't know if you were into oil and gas law well, there. Oh boys, down now. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, how did I get here? Right. Yeah. So yeah, I was a toxic tort lawyer for the first few years, representing large um, downstream operators in Louisiana. You know, they have a, a pet Coke plant has some sort of tube that cracks and you get a release and you get thousands of people nearby that claim that they've had exposure that are sick. And so I really cut my teeth on large toxic tort litigation is how I started. And then that morphed into helping operators with understanding and contracting risk with master service agreements, indemnities, you know, trying to allocate and understand and mitigate risk from an operator's perspective and a lot of insurance coverage work for operators. So I, I represented operators when they have a blowout, there's well control insurance. And again, if there's a lot of money at stake, the insurance companies will try to weasel out of paying a valid claim. So I sued insurance companies for oil companies. So two of the like most hated, yeah. you know, types of companies out there, and uh, I was fighting for them. And so I was really proud of, of representing oil and gas operators. I think most are trying to do the right thing um, I think a lot of the, the, the midsize and smaller guys are really trying to do the right thing based on my experience. And so I was shocked uh, when I came out here in the Permian in 2017, continued doing that kind of work, and then uh, just kind of over time became frustrated with a, a conventional firm, the pricing models, the billable hour, I think is um, antiquated. It rewards people being incredibly inefficient. Um, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to practice law that way. So I really wanted to get, get control of my life and my time and be paid for the value that I brought and not the hours that I spent working. And so I started my own firm last year. I met Ashley on Twitter in the spring. And Ashley, Ashley Watt, um, she's the owner of uh, the ranch where I'm at now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. And so uh, she was like, hey, I was I was going through a divorce at the time. She's like, come live in my pool house for the summer. You nice. can kind of help me with some operators. I was like, yeah, that's cool. And um, a week after living there, we had a well that blew out, uh, an old Chevron plugged an abandoned well that blew out. And the rest is kind of history. And so uh, I got, I've been really, really frustrated with the way that the Chevron and the Railroad Commission has handled that, you know, quite frankly, disaster. And um, was like, you know what? Fuck it. Uh, if I can't fix it, I can't just bitch about it. So I'm going to try to run and try to change it. So now officially <laughs> a railroad commission 
candidate for what is when is the election? So the primary is March 1st. Uh, early voting starts February 14th. And so for those who are listening who are not in Texas, the I'll, I'll let you do the definition, but why is a railroad commission involved <laughs> in a subsurface underground right? blowout? What what it, we, how, what, what, what does driving cranes have to do with the oil and yeah. gas industry? Yeah. Well, thank thank the um, antiquated um, name. the The railroad commission actually started, I think it was in the late eighteen hundreds, with railroads across the state were perceived to be abusing their powers. The regulate the the entity was created. You have three elected officials. As of I think it's two thousand five, they no longer have any jurisdiction over railroads, but they do have jurisdiction almost over every aspect of oil and gas mm -hmm. uh, exploration and production, intrastate pipelines, all that good stuff in the state of yeah, Texas. I guess for my uh, brief understanding of the history, what the the te East Texas oil field was discovered and, you know, the place went nuts. It was one of the first real big oil rush in Texas and had to transport the oil by train. And so that was the only entity that could control mm -hmm what was going on. So they wound up getting control of oil and gas. So would it be, if you were in the state of Colorado or Alaska, is the railroad commission now officially just the oil and gas commission of Texas? It is. It's like department oh, of natural cool. resources in Louisiana. Um, CFGCC, yep. et cetera. Yep. Yep. Um, that's uh, so, so who is the current commissioner and, and how long is the position for it's like every two years, this election? Yeah. So there's three different commissioners. They serve no. six year terms. And um, right now I am running against Wayne Christian, a 70 something year old financial planner who's been a career long politician who has no oil and gas knowledge, ran, he was a state rep, ran for a couple other seats unsuccessfully, and then basically ran unopposed with the blessing of the Republican party um, six years ago. Got it. So, so you're, and so can Tim vote for you? Like, how, how does it work? Who, who are you going to show up on his ballot? Yeah. So the cool thing about Texas is that we actually have open primaries. So anyone in Texas can show up on primary day and declare which party they'd like to vote for. Well, so my goal isn't to reach the 1.8 million traditional Republican primary voters. It's to to get some of those 20 million others who don't ever vote in primaries to show up and vote early or on March 1st in the Republican primary. Well, very cool. I mean, good, good luck. Do you, how do you forecast these things? Like, do you know if you have a shot and like, what are the, what are the, the ways that you go about trying to win this thing? Yeah. So, you know, if I was running a traditional campaign, I'd be accepting donations and, and um, out there trying to raise money. Uh, but the more I learn, I hate politics, right? And the more I learn about it, the more I hate it because I'm like, okay, but what do you do with that money? And they're like, oh, will you raise more money? Well, right. what are you raising money for? And apparently it's to say that you've got a lot of money so that you can get more money to then spend a little bit of it on mailers and maybe some advertisement. But in reality, I mean, no one in this, you know, typical statewide election, um, is winning this thing with less than a million dollars in campaign donations. And so I'm doing the exact opposite. I'm not taking any donations because I'm going to prove to everyone that in this day and age, uh, we don't need to, we don't need to buy, we don't need to buy attention. We can do that on social media and we can draw people to us that are looking for the information to educate them and then inspire them to action. 
I mean, that's what Trump did a little bit. Love him or hate him uh, in 2015, 2016. He was he took a different. It's like, I don't need to do it like that. I have social media. Right. I'm not saying you're Donald Trump. I have no idea what your true politics are or, or any of that. But nonetheless, I, I do agree with that approach in this day and age, because it, I mean, that's where your audience is looking. The eyeballs are on social media. So, yeah, you know, you're probably not going to convince the people that aren't on social media anyway, if they're if they're Wayne Christian's age. For example. Right. Exactly. Right. Like they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, so you live in Midland. Uh, I live south of Monahans. Yeah. So I live about an hour southwest of Midland. Oh, okay. I don't think I've ever been down that is way. That where the, no, that's, is that where the sand dunes are? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what, what are the sand dunes? It's the bottom of an old sea, but it's really cool. So if you ever get out this way, uh, you're going to have to come check it out because it is, it's just, it's it looks like the Sahara Desert of just oh, cool. sand, and you can go sledding on sand, and um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool place. But it it has uh, a lot of oil and gas underneath it, so it's technically <laughs> in the the Central Basin platform um, is is where I am in the Permian Basin. Is it a preserved area? Like, is it a you know? I mean, like, can you drill there or no? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. All around it. So there yeah, is a yeah. state park and there's actually okay. even a couple wells in the state park, but yeah, if you pull up a Google maps, uh, the aerial footage, it's, um, it's pretty checkerboarded with pad sites. Yeah. yeah. Which is sort of normal for that part of the world too. Like I have a, I have a friend who's not in oil and gas at all, but he's like, oh yeah, my wife has a ranch on the Oklahoma and Texas border and they have 16 old, old gas wells on it. Right. It's just a lot. There's just a lot of that. These are larger plots of land than, than people are, are used to. Um, so so you, you live in West Texas. You're in the oil field consistently. You're, you're making a play for railroad commissioner. Like, obviously, you're, you're focused and tactical and, and, and at the same time strategic. What is the bigger picture for you? Do, we, do, you, do you like want to pursue politics? Do you want to expand your your uh, legal uh, footprint. I mean, you also have, I know some cannabis related interests that we'll touch on at some point. So like, what is it for you when you think, I don't know how old you are, mid thirties, early thirties, you're at the point where you're like, you know, you've done a lot, but what's it going to be from here right now? You know how to do some stuff. So where are you going to go? Yeah. Good question. I have absolutely no desire to continue in politics. I mean, let, okay. let's assume best case scenario, I get elected. Uh, that's a six year commitment in a serious pay cut for the next six years. No, um, but I want to fix this industry. I mean, I really think that we are at a breaking point where if we don't fix it from within, the feds are going to come in and really screw it up. Um, people that don't understand our industry and the realities of we need hydrocarbons, right? Like it powers our way of life. I, I think we've seen it with the Biden administration where he came in and he was going to shut down drilling and all this stuff. And we all knew that that wasn't going to happen. And sure enough, it hasn't happened. And him has Biden has actually been really excellent for um, oil prices because, right, there was some fear of shutting down exploration. And now we're realizing that's really not coming to fruition. And so I think I think we are we sh we need to get this beyond politics. And I want to I want to stop politicizing things and have logic and common sense and um, 
being a steward of the a good steward of the environment and producing hydrocarbons does not have to be mutually exclusive. And we need to be having really big picture conversations about the fit future of energy, the future of our grid. Like, what are we going to do to make sure that hundreds of people don't die the next time we have a bad freeze? Right. Like these are and what are we going to do about these earthquakes and what are we going to do about groundwater? And at the same time, um, we're not going to be all driving magical cars powered by solar panels. Wow. I think an amen after that. Yeah, I mean, there's, so yeah. it's it's a it's a complex issue, though, right? Because you you yeah. really you said I totally agree with everything you just said. I think most people of of sound mind would. It, it seems like there's just other interests that generally tend to get in the way, and I think that's what you've already experienced to this point. Is there's machines out there that are powerful. You know, we talk a little bit about the Patriots on this one, but Tom Brady, you guys should watch the Man in the Arena if you haven't seen that thing. But, That's but on my list, Jeremy. Really, like, really, really good, and and really in depth into it. But there's a there there's a lot of like commonalities in terms of of what you're talking about. Where where he said he goes with the whole Deflate Gate thing. He's like, what luck am I going to have taking 31 billionaires to court, right? So at a certain point, like, even though you're Tom Brady, there's still a bigger machine in play, right? And I, I was like, yeah, God, but like that's I didn't even really think of it like that. But how are you going to win? It's you against tri- a trillion dollars. Right. And so, and I think, I think even two years ago, I probably didn't stand a chance pre COVID and TikTok. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but I literally get more done by going out publicly shaming people on TikTok by exposing crude that they've just dumped caliche on top of. And three days later, it's cleaned up. Whereas I go and I complain to the regulators, I can file suit, but you know, the, 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 the cog, the machine, the man, they, they know those games, right? And they want to get into a discovery battle. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Dark Waters. It's about the... I think so. It's, uh, it's really good. Check it out. It's a, it's a drama, but it's based on a true life story of uh, DuPont and Teflon. And the fact oh, that... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, I remember yeah, that. Right? So for years and years, DuPont knew that the chemical properties of Teflon were really bad. And they hit it and they actively bought up property and uh, because billions of dollars is worth more than people's lives and lawsuits. And if you look in the Permian and what we're starting to realize is some of the largest landowners out here are now oil and gas companies because they screw up the land and instead of fixing it, they just buy out the landowner. And so um, you ask kind of what my long-term goal is. Assuming I get elected the next six years, I'm gonna fight like hell to fix this shit and then I'm going to move on to cannabis because, uh, yeah, I am passionate. It's another thing that it it's ridiculous that the government um, has, it's still illegal, that we're criminalizing it. We're continuing to incarcerate people of color in huge numbers, disproportionate. We're continuing to let big pharma and big alcohol lobbyists prevent it. And I'm really tired of the same old assholes controlling and everyone else losing. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to all of this. This is a very cool, you know, I feel like the people that, well, I mean, I got to know you, Sarah, this is our first time having a conversation, but seeing those first videos, I I saw them on LinkedIn of you out there in the field, taking videos and you mentioned TikTok and, and the shaming, you know, and I guess there are very strong reactions on both sides 
to those videos. And I found that it's fascinating. It's just a really fun thing to watch. But from, from your perspective, as you're putting them out, I mean, have you, what, well, how scary was it for you to start doing that? And then the reaction, I mean, I, some positive, some negative, but you know, what's that been like? Yeah. So it's funny. I would say I wasn't scared at all the first time I posted on TikTok because I'd already started my own firm and I didn't have a boss. But the reason that I started my own firm was because I was constantly getting pressure. You know, originally the last firm that I worked for really enjoyed my social media presence. And they were like, yes, we like that you're outspoken. And then I started talking about cannabis. And they were like, oh, I mean, we're okay on oil and gas stuff. But, you know, the (laughs) cannabis stuff, that's just, I was like, well, guys, you know, sorry. Like, this is what I'm passionate about. And I'm, my whole life, you know, I was the nerdy kid in school that sat at the front of the class and raised my hands and asked the hard questions. And I've been told my whole life, sit down, shut up. You're making too much noise. Don't ask that question. That's a stupid question. You don't get it. And the older I get, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) I get it. Y'all either don't get it or are are consciously trying to prevent others from getting it. And I, I think we can do better. And so when I first started being vulnerable on LinkedIn four or five years ago, yeah, that was terrifying. Because, mm-hmm. you know, my I, at the time I had Facebook, but my Facebook was private. I wasn't on Instagram, you know, and it was like social media was for friends and family. And then I realized about four or five years ago I am never going to be able to get business in a traditional sense. I don't come from a family of money. I don't come, right? Like I'm not making those connections to people. I need, I have a niche, which at the time was oil and gas, risk management, allocation contracts. I need to help educate people so that the clients that appreciate my style will find me. And and that's worked. And so... No, no it, it definitely would have been scary. And it was scary in the past when I had a boss that I had to answer to. But I am firmly of the belief it's easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. I learned that a long time ago, <laughs> especially when you're doing something non, non-traditional. non And I'm like, nope, fuck y'all. You've hired me to do a thing. I'm going to go do the thing and watch me. Watch me whip, right? Watch me nay-nay. And here it is. <laughs> right? So, Yeah. But yeah, no, it's scary. It is scary. And I I appreciate that for people. Well, I think, you know, and at least once it got physically scary. I saw your post uh, not too long ago. I I saw that. I saw that. On the pad was, well, I mean, it's hard to tell in the video, but he was definitely being pretty aggressive coming at you. What what was the story behind that? Yeah. So that's a smaller operator. He's no, he's gone. I'm I'm not going to mention his name because I'm trying to let that um, die out. I do not want to stir that shit pot. But um, yeah, no, it's a, it was a company man, a contracted company man for a small operator that I knew was lying on their reports to the railroad commission. I had set up hidden cameras. I'd caught them and I was driving through, uh, not looking for them that day, but they were, they had a cement truck at a well that had been plugged and the wellhead had already been cut off. And I was like, why is there a cement truck? So I went to go look and he started coming at me with his truck. So I turned on my phone and um, they are represented by counsel and that that well is not an active, you know, kind of litigation, so to speak, or administrative proceedings. Um, but I'm, I'm try- I try to avoid talking to people on location and I'm just trying to document at this point and fight about it later. And he wouldn't let me get up and record. 
and he grabbed my wrist and shoved me back. He's a, you know, six foot three, 300 pound dude. And I'm five, eight, 135 pounds. And, um, I left hooked him. I drew a little blood, but I was like, no, fuck you. I'm not moving. I'm sitting here. I'm calling 911. We will wait for the sheriff to come. And so we did. Sheriff came. He got a no trespassing order. Later that night, I'm pretty sure his wife threw a cinder block through my windshield. We're still waiting on the sheriff's office to finish investigating that. Um, But yeah, no, it's been, uh, you know, you run in when, when bad people get caught lying, they're angry. And I'm catching a lot of people lying and there's a lot of people that are angry. And so I'm I'm kind of jokingly, but not jokingly, I'm telling people I am not suicidal. I, I am very happy with my life. Um, and if I come up missing or dead, there's lots of angry people out there. So yeah, it, that's scary. Like, you know, when you realize that you're up against billions of dollars with and, and corrupt politicians and corrupt entities. Yeah, that that's scary, but um, it's worth fighting for. They call her the unicorn for a reason. <laughs> and, uh, and I think you're, you're starting to see why this is, I mean, this is all really, really insightful stuff. Um, and do you have a, you know, like a counterpart? Is there some, anybody else that you would say is like a contemporary in the industry that does similar things? Or are you truly like, like one of one? I think I'm one of one. I, I think, like, but I'll tell you this. I have, I call it the unicorn tribe. I have every day like five to 10 people, new people that reach out to me. And they're like, I love what you're doing. I can't publicly speak out because I'm in the, I'm in (laughs) corporate America still. I have a family to support. I'm scared, but I'm not alone. Right. There are a lot of people with a lot of good ideas who, um, you know, would love to be able to do what I'm doing, I think. And I just, um, I have the fortune of not needing the money you know, and being able to really live pretty lean and having made some good financial choices over the past few years. Not that I have fuck you money, but I've got friends with fuck you money and uh, I don't need a whole lot to be happy. Right. Yeah. So uh, uh, we have a couple of things. We get to know you things that we go through, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, Jeremy and I are always fascinated about the strange places that the oil field takes us. And obviously, you know, you live in Monaghan, you're out in the Permian all the time. Uh, but that, and that's not that that's strange because we're very familiar with that. Well, Jeremy's not familiar with Monaghan's, but where is the kind of the craziest place that you never thought the oil and gas world would take you? Where where have you some of the cool places that you've been? Hmm. That's a good question. I'll have to think about that one. Um, yeah, I, I think. Mine's probably not a physical thing, but a more big picture. And that's the cannabis industry. What I realized a few years ago was how similar the two industries are from a kind of a commodity, not quite a commodity, you know, different, you've got different types of, of cannabis, different uses for it, very much misunderstood, very much villainized. And so I think my roundabout answer to that is, yeah, I've been some cool places with oil and gas, but I've been a lot cooler places without oil and gas. And um, where it's where it has brought me is it's given me the freedom to really stand up for myself and like that wildcatter mentality. 
and um, to not be afraid to piss people off and blaze new trails and do things that you know in your gut need to be done. Um, so not really an answer to the question, but I created. <laughs> that's why that was, that, that's exactly where I want to take because it's, it's I've got a I've got another question along those lines. All right, so you're you've got your foot in the cannabis industry. I'll I'll call it like jar that for now. The cannabis what the weed jar. Yeah, oil and gas. It's never weed. It's, never weed. Well. it's cannabis. Right. Oh God, we, we got to talk about a lawsuit that I'm involved in in the cannabis. Tim, did I did I tell you this? I, I wonder you how haven't. much I can even say. It doesn't matter. It's not like those idiots are listening to this. I thought I was going to be like the smartest guy in the world and got in um, to some Northern California like. Uh, cannabis dispensary investment opportunities with a large group. And now we're just in court for fraud because he took all of our money. <laughs> and uh, it's just the tip of the spear with this guy, right? So we're hoping to get something back. But nonetheless, it was like, of course, there, there's a huge business opportunity, which means there's going to be a lot of corruption in, in that type of space. So my exposure to it was, I'm here in Colorado. I saw how it exploded here. And Hey, I live in a town of 30,000 people and within half a mile, there's three dispensaries and one guy owns two of them. So if you can be that guy, you got, I mean, he must be living on an Island right now, right? Just because his timing was good and he doesn't do anything. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I could see where the corruption plays and I'm curious, like, are you, what does Texas look like from a cannabis perspective? And is that where your, your focus would be once you transition to that? Yeah, no, Texas is really sad. It, it's one of these states that on the books has decriminalized small amounts. Um, you know, it's basically a misdemeanor now, but sure. um, and their medical program's a joke. And, you know, my, my philosophy on it is the reason that it's um, so still heavily regulated is because there's so many entities, mainly big pharma and alcohol, tobacco, who do not want the competition. And the right. moment we start giving people the power to grow their own medicine with cannabis and cybicillin and, and kind of all these really amazing things that God, Mother Nature, whoever you want to call it, has already given us. And that, unfortunately, we've, um, we've really abused it. And there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of good intentions you know, 30 years ago that we really need to be like, okay, guys, we fucked this up. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we fucked this up, like let's fix it. And so, yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I, I bought a property in Mississippi after they legalized and then their Supreme court overruled it. And so, you know, I, I, yeah, I've got lots of goals. God, God but forbid we bring more uh, money into the state and arrest less people for petty crimes. Right. But yeah. anyways, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious though. I mean, it, on the surface, the the stereotype stereotype of the cannabis industry and the oil and gas industry on the surface cannot be more different. I right. Mean, mm. you, in, in my head, you know, I've got a mm. you know a, a long haired, sandal wearing guys on one side, and you know uh, steel toe boots and coveralls on the other. But in your experience, is there, you know, and then I guess the politics are different, you know. Republicans, Democrats, uh, you know, all of that. So is it, is it from a people perspective, is it the same people on both on, in yeah. all those industries? Yeah. You'd be shocked how no. many oil and gas guys are already in the cannabis space. No doubt. And from a planning perspective of growing, processing, you know, exploring for and producing the oil, 
uh, growing the cannabis, processing the oil, processing the cannabis, retailing the oil, retailing the cannabis, risk allocation, you know, transportation, all of that. And, and the miss, again, the misconception of, you know, people think they know what oil and gas looks like and they don't just like people think they know the cannabis guys. And what's so fascinating to me is once I publicly came out, I don't know, a couple of years ago about being in both spaces, the amount of people that were like, I thought I was the only one that was in both spaces. And I'm like, no, (laughs) there really is so much overlap. Sheesh. I should have, yeah. I should have consulted you four years ago before I gave this guy my money, but no, that it's, it, it was sort of like a, at least from my sense, it was a risk worth taking because it, it's very, it's volatile right now. It's boomer bust, right? Like if you do get it, if you did get that Mississippi location and it hit shit, I mean, you could have made a million dollars a year off of that or something or, or sold it before you even ever had to open the store for $300,000. Like there are stories and those things do happen where it's like oil and gas though, is the common man's not the guy doing that. You know what I mean? Like the people that are winning are the people that always win. <laughs> and oftentimes it's people that are faceless or behind a billion dollar corporation. And that was kind of my hard learning in it too. Um, from a consumer perspective, Tim, sure. Right. Like the, the supporter, oh. but standpoint but i mean like cbd like come on man you know what i mean like cbd is like basically like a pain medication but um i don't know regardless regardless getting hot with the unicorn over here yeah, sitting I'm, in the I'm sun in the car i was nice. wondering if you know because you looked at you know it's pretty warm here at least i'm i'm coming at you from houston but it's pretty warm here for winter even for <laughs> nowadays and i didn't know if the if it was cooler up in middle but you had the nice fur lined jacket on. i was like wow nah, no i'm always cold it's it's like in the 50s but it's warming up it's 24 degrees in lafayette colorado at the moment wow uh, no this is this is good stuff so so i want to talk esg very quickly because it, obviously it's a hot buzz term that's thrown around um and and to me at least one of the the big takeaways that i've learned is ESG is not just an oil and gas issue. It's the same type of issue for things like fashion, uh, chemicals, transportation, cannabis farms. Yeah. There's so many, uh, you know, facets of this, but I'm curious as it relates to oil and gas with ESG, we hear about the bigger companies making pledges. This is the direction. And what you said just spit right in the face of that with what you're seeing from some large operators in West Texas. Is it just lip service or do you see, companies trying to be better? Both. So I think, I think for most it's lip service. I think most think it's a bunch of bullshit, but realize that it's here to stay. And so they're going to have to play the game. So now they're trying to figure out how do they monetize it? For some, I feel like they're like, oh good, this is a chance for us to get credit for the doing the right stuff for not flaring, right? For making sure we've got vapor recovery units for recycling water for whatever it is. Um, but no, like for the majors. <laughs> All right. So for those not watching on YouTube, a hand gesture was made. That, was, so there we that go. was rolling the dice. That was, was rolling a the dice. dice roll. Rolling the dice. dice okay. roll at the uh, craps table. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Rolling the dice. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, t- I took a drive through the, the primary Eagle for development area, uh, this last week, just going to visit some people. And uh, it's still, you see the flare stack still sitting out there. So, I mean, it's not like it was five years ago. You know, you couldn't drive at night and not have to use your headlights like it once was. But mm. it, you know, it, there's still a lot of flaring going on. I mean, they have they have 
flames on them. They're not in theory, not releasing actual methane, but still, still a lot there. Well, and what what I'm realizing, what I'm realizing is we're seeing less flares, but I think they're actually venting to atmosphere more. Mm. Wow. And we're just not, and I, so, you know, it'll be, it, I'm so excited about October, 2022, when this new satellite, that's going to prove all the lying assholes, like they're not ready. We're going to like, there's not going to be secrets. And the fact that people still think they can lie and get away with it is mind boggling to me. I'm like, we are, we are in a time of truth and people need to get really comfortable with living their authentic, true lives and get okay. Pissing people off and get okay having preferences and sticking to those preferences and having boundaries and letting people have their boundaries and their preferences and really picking our battles because, um, you know, it, we, we just haven't done that. It's like, that was, that was amazing. Like, I hope that the digital wildcatters records that clip like they have been for oh, some yeah. of our things. Cause it was like part therapy, part motivation, part a little bit crazy, just, just total unicorn, total yeah, unicorn. All in one. Now this is, this is awesome. I think there are things we could get even deeper on, but I think we we've got to jump unfortunately for, a um, for a, another meeting, but this is, this is awesome. Where can people find you? How can people vote for you? Um, what are the key dates, all that stuff. If you could just lay that out for us right now, before we jump off. Yeah, so they can find out more about the campaign at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, the number four, R-R-C.com. Or my my legal website is Stogner, S-T-O-G-N-E-R, legal.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Sarah Stogner. I am the unicorn lawyer on TikTok. I am Sarah for R-R-C on Twitter. Uh, I'm everywhere. I'm not hard to find. So That's awesome. Well, keep doing what you do. You are a true wildcatter. And a Thanks. great follow. And it's a great follow. I, I recommend everyone to, to, to get on, or at least on LinkedIn, it's where I, I follow Sarah. So, Yeah, if, if nothing else for me to anger you, right? You can be mad at me <laughs> and, um, you know, talk about me to your buddies about about what a moron I am. You know, that that's fine. I just really want to get people thinking and talking and maybe recognizing that this industry that I love and that the people that are mad at me love um, maybe has some room for improvement. Yeah. I mean, like the great Taylor Swift once said, the player's going to hate, 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 hate. <laughs> there you go. 